Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from those that are building them. I'm your host, Becca Skutak, and I'm joined, as always, by the fabulous Dominic Midori Davis. Hey, Dom, how's it going? I'm doing good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. You know, hanging in there. We're recording on a Friday. Yep, a Friday, January. Wait, you know, there's something I've always wanted to ask you. Oh my gosh, what? What is your favorite type of soda? Oh, I'll be honest, I don't drink soda and never really have. My strongest memory with soda is my friend buying one for me at a bar last year at Coke because she was like, I drink this every day and I think it's insane you've never had one. So she made me drink it and I was like, this is mid. Oh, that's so insane. But first of all, I have to say, like, the people who drink one Coke a day, I've met so many people like that. Why? What are you doing, guys? Like, I don't understand, but shout out to that. Listen, I don't have soda in my home, but when I go back home to Florida, I love, I do like soda once a day. Yeah. I love soda. It's so good. Well, people really love it. I get that I am in the small percentage of people who don't drink it, but there is one soda that I have tried fairly recently who happens to be the company that we spoke with for today's episode. Because today we have on Bed Goodwin from Olipop, which is supposed to be a more gut-healthy, low-sugar, high-fiber soda meant to be like a healthier alternative. Yes, we had a really, really cool conversation with Ben. Olipop seems really interesting. Before we jump into the conversation, of course, we're going to do our two truths and a lie. So listen up, everyone. What is the lie? What am I lying about? Okay, is the lie that Ben started off in the kombucha business? Or that Olipop's revenue last year was $150 million? Or is the lie that Ben is the CEO and still in charge of creating all the Olipop flavors? Ooh, those definitely sound like things you're going to want to listen out for. So, dear listeners, grab a soda of your choice and sit down and enjoy this conversation with Ben. Good to meet you guys. Thanks for having me on. Good to meet you as well. How's it going? Uh, not too bad. It's definitely been a whole fresh new year getting kicked off here. So it's always a little overwhelming and daunting to start the year off. And it's a lot of anticipation. We had quite a growth year last year. So now you figure out if you can do it again. But yeah, overall, I'm doing well. Definitely. Cool. Well, glad to have you on the show today. It probably makes the most sense to get started if you want to start by telling us a little bit about Olipop. For sure. So Olipop is a new kind of soda. It's the first major innovation to the soda category since really diet soda in the 1980s. The trade press is calling us a functional soda. We did essentially found the category in which there are now multiple entrants. But we've got two to five grams of sugar per can versus 40 or north of 40 for traditional soda. And then we've got nine grams of soluble fiber per can as well. On an experiential basis, what a customer experiences when they just drink a can is it just tastes like the regular soda that they grew up drinking and that they're used to drinking and it replaces that experience. But on the backside, we've actually completed research at Purdue and with other leading universities. So we have some real solid data that indicates, you know, health benefits with the product. And it is interesting to think about innovating in the soda category, because like you mentioned, there hasn't been much innovation there. And that is a category that is such a big part of the beverage space in general. How did you get interested in making a new soda to begin with? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm a longtime beverage entrepreneur. So I dropped out of college at 20 and helped a friend start a kombucha company. And at the time, it wasn't like I had particular interest in kombucha. I just 
felt the siren song of beverage generally, which like there's a lot of entrance into beverage. So I'm not alone in, in that. But that was simply the path that I wanted to go on. I think the thing that attracted me to health and wellness in the first place was my own childhood journey. I grew up consuming a standard American diet. Mm -hmm. That didn't really go very well for me. I ended up you know, being quite overweight and anxious as a, as a kid. And at 14, actually pivoted just to my own journey and started taking my health really seriously. And I, I lost a bunch of weight, but I also found that that journey of changing my diet and my approach to my health really affected my emotional and cognitive functioning as well. And that became a huge gateway to me for self-actualization and self-improvement. So there I was, dropped out of college because we also grew up poor and I didn't want to be in debt forever and helped friends start a kombucha company and learned what the microbiome is and then learned what the brain-gut axis is. So the idea that we produce the majority of our neurotransmitters and hormones actually via fermentation in our microbiome and they really affect the way that we feel and think. And the light bulb went off for me. We're like, oh, wow, that's probably what I experienced when I changed my diet. And then the rest of my adult life really in different forms now in the form of Olipop has been, you know, how do we take ingredients and nutritional strategies that are as, as empirically validated as possible and represent kind of the cutting edge of ingredient technology, but put them in a Trojan horse format that actually makes them as accessible as humanly possible to as many people as possible. And throughout my 18-year now journey into beverage and product development, you know, Olipop just really represents all of my kind of cumulative knowledge and, and learnings up, up to this point. So, Ben, you mentioned earlier that obviously Olipop, the formula and kind of the soda you guys have built is based on scientific research that this is like a healthier alternative and is good for the microbiome. I'm curious if you could talk about what that process was like and sort of finding which researchers to look into this and kind of like what the process was like actually building out that base of research. I love this question. So I will try to keep the answer somewhat truncated, but I mean, this is one of my favorite areas. So thank you for asking. And I actually think it's really important to ask as well, because there is a 300-ish billion dollar health and wellness industry in the United States between food, beverage, and supplements. And less than 1% of those brands actually do any independent research. And so just as a starting place, I think the first question was, you know, do we try to facilitate some of our own independent research or not? The nutritional strategy that we built is based on a lot of the research that it was coming out of the microbiome field. Historically, people use consumer-grade probiotics to try to benefit the microbiome, but the literature is really shifting away from the viability of that option. They were finding they weren't making it through to the large intestine, or they were just dying in the, in the bottle, or they were dying in, in the capsule. So that was kind of the first pivot point, because the 10 years prior to Olipop, I had worked in fermentation and, and probiotics, and deciding to exit that to find a different strategy was based on shifts in the science. Then looking at all the kind of indigenous and translational research, I narrowed in on fiber, prebiotics, and nutritional diversity as the three big things that are typically present in non-industrialized diets that are missing from industrialized diets that would provide the most benefits. That was the kind of the, the starting place. And then I you know, really thought to myself, okay, look, if we're going after something as big as soda, which has 98% household penetration, this is like a real shot to actually transform a, a lot of people's diets and meet people where they are. And also knowing what I knew about the general lack of an independent research inside of the health and wellness industry, you know, we kind of made the determination very, very early on for Olipop that if we are successful with this, we also need to set a new standard 
for what constitutes adequate research. And to be clear, we only make one claim, right? Which is that Olipop is beneficial for digestive health. And that claim's foundation is backed even just by the quantity of fiber we have in the product. So technically, from a claim-making standpoint, the research is all extraneous. But I still think it's very important that health and wellness businesses that are charging a premium for their product do research to actually figure out if they're delivering a benefit. So literally, the start of it was a gentleman that I work with and I got in cars, got in planes, and we popped around to different universities and different microbiome researchers that we looked up to. We liked their work. We popped into a bunch of people's labs and we just had a bunch of meetings. Says This is the nutritional foundation of the product. This is the ingredients that are going to be in it. This is what we're trying to accomplish with this product. We think it's really important that there's a new scientific standard. Are you interested in advising us or being a part of a scientific advisory board? And by the way, we don't have much to pay you, if anything, because that was expected. That was back at the beginning. It was all self-funded. And, you know, I think we probably took about 14 or 15 of those conversations. And some people were polite. Some people were not very polite. <laughs> and then you had a handful of folks that really believed in what we were doing. And I think one of the things that benefited us was I think a lot of great researchers still get very frustrated at the gap between the research that they do and its ability to flow through and impact the actual consumer market. Typically, there's a right. 10 to 20 year gap between their research. And so working with an emerging company that actually really cared about the science was their route. So we have our scientific advisory board. You can look them up online. We're actually adding another wonderful woman to it right now who's a metabolic health expert. And then two of our, our scientific advisory board members, Dr. Jens Walter and Dr. Joseph Petrosino, wrote a mechanism of action white paper with 152 citations, basically just looking at what's the body of evidence that currently exists that supports the mechanism of action for this product as a nutritional strategy. And then that laddered into our in vitro research, which were basically externalized gut models. But what we looked at were first and second order outcomes. So are we seeing a benefit to the composition of the microbes? And then are we seeing that they're actually doing something different? In this case, we were tracking short-chain fatty acids. So are we seeing that they're actually fermenting beneficial short-chain fatty acids? And in this case, what we saw was unequivocally, the answer was yes. And I can happily go further to the science, but in order to try to keep it somewhat high level, that's what that process looked like and why we wanted to go down that road. And, you know, I'm really happy about it. And I would say that the only other thing I'll add to this is it has created some really interesting opportunities for us. So that it caught the attention of the White House and we actually got invited to their Hunger Nutrition Summit, hmm. which was really fun and something that we'll probably continue to participate in. And it actually opened the doorway to two different insurance reimbursement networks. So one is the OTC network, and the other one is called Solutran. And between those two networks, through Medicare and Medicare Advantage, we actually are now a reimbursable product for about 25 million Americans. And that's important to us because we do have a more premium product. That cost structure is not just so we can rake in the cash. It's what we actually need to charge for the product in order to make a sustainable business. But allowing for reimbursements for folks with insurance does actually move us forward in, in increasing accessibility, which, I, which I'm a big fan of. So I've been really pleased with the outcome from actually doing the research. Kind of unpacking everything you said. <laughs> Going back to something you mentioned in the kind of beginning, you mentioned the industrial diet. What is that? Another phenomenal question. So essentially, okay, I got to really 
I have to make sure I'm delivering the right amount of information against these questions because they are fantastic questions that I probably know too much about. I mean, the industrial diet is really the post-World War II Western diet. That's That's probably an adequate way to describe it. You know, essentially, there were major advances in hybridization and petrochemical and food additive technologies during World War II that have essentially gotten ramped up at scale especially in Western countries. And fundamentally, they've done a couple of different things to the food supply. They've drastically decreased micronutrient concentration in the soil and in the food, which includes fiber. And they've really increased natural artificial flavors, artificial colors, artificial preservatives, which that combination can send a message to the brain that it should be getting critical micronutrients, but it's not actually getting them because they're absent from the underlying food, which ends up driving nutritional depletion in people, but an overabundance of calories. And that's kind of where a lot of modern society sits. I was going to say, because it seems like it's gotten, maybe diets have gotten worse lately, but is that because of big food industry? Is that why they're doing this to us? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because, so one of the insights that Olipop is predicated on, and I truly, this is like part of my philosophy. I really do believe that the body is trying to get what it needs and we are trying to be as healthy as we can. And I do think that there's a little bit of a, a labyrinth in the grocery store that makes it really, really hard for somebody who doesn't have like a master's in nutritional science to decode what's good for them and what's not good for them. You know, I don't think the initial intentions were insidious, but I would say if I had to guess that over the decades, a range of different industrialized food companies have certainly taken note of the addictive qualities of many of their foods. And if you can make something really, really tasty, mechanically addictive, and really cheap and consistent, I think that's seen in the kind of antisocial, mechanized food system as being a great business. But I think fundamentally, you know, my belief system is that that is a very short-sighted way to approach social engineering, and it ultimately really undermines the fabric of society. And you can see the outcomes of that in our healthcare outcomes. You know, according to the CDC, 40% of Americans, and I think these numbers are underbaked, but 40% of Americans have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes. That number is predicted, there's predicted to be 1.3 billion people with type 2 diabetes by 2050. Unimaginable. And right now, again, CDC numbers, 61% plus Americans have weekly digestive distress. And that's an indication as well, typically, of microbiomes that aren't doing particularly well. That at scale has massive emotional, physiological, social, and economic implications for any country. And you just can't, you can't get away from that. Yeah, that's so interesting because like I always I know that throughout the world, Americans are always clowned on for having terrible diets. But it's just I mean, those statistics are just so insane to hear. What is the biggest hindrance toward fixing stuff like that? Like, why hasn't it gotten better? I know that you mentioned that it takes 20 years for like research to happen and then for it to kind of hit the general conscious. Mm -hmm. Why is that? And how long did it take for you to turn your research into your product? Well, that's what's nice about being the entrepreneur, right? Is you can just, I I would say, in fact, what happens with most entrepreneurs, they just, to my point, they don't even do the research, they just commercialize it immediately. So Having the standard of implementing some research and and some good scientific scrutiny, but also having a a commercial vehicle allows you to be 
pretty immediate with your turnaround as long as your results warrant you actually deploying it out to the market. In terms of, like, I think Olipop was a very purposeful decision. I think, you know, what is kind of key to our approach is this idea that brands can be really tricky and relationships can be very tricky. So here's a good example of an experience that we've had. As we've been interacting with many different people who love soda, right? Like I grew up drinking soda myself. Um, people have a really, really deep relationship with soda as a concept. It's it's actually part of a lot of people's core identities, a story that always really resonated with me. So we had a woman write in whose grandmother had just passed away. And she was in hospice for a couple months with terminal stomach cancer. She couldn't eat or drink almost anything. But one of the few things that she could actually consume was Olipop. And they would bring her a root beer Olipop every time they would see her. And this was really, really touching for us. But she wrote in that, you know, the only time we saw our grandma smile the last couple months of being alive is when she was drinking your root beer. And that flavor profile brought her back to when she was a little girl drinking root beer. And so this is this kind of, you know, which obviously we were just blown away by that. We sent them as much free root beer as they ever wanted. And, you know, when we after we had like dried our eyes. But the the point being, these are really powerful emotional relationships that consumers create with these brands and with these flavor profiles. And we talk about issues with access, especially in lower income consumers. But I think when you look at the scale of the problem, what we're looking at is a behavior change issue. And if we want to get the mass population to shift their behavior, you actually have to make it as easy for them as possible. So it's on the companies to do the right thing, to actually have as research informed of products as they can. But it's also their job to find a way to meet consumers where they are and to bridge them into something that's better. It's so interesting that you talk about that because we actually just recently spoke to the founders at Magic Spoon. Oh, yeah. And they talk a lot about the nostalgia piece. And like, that's like a big part of like how you get people to make that behavior change. And does that help your alternative? Because it's like, oh, the flavor is the same as this sugary thing I'm used to eating. That's part of my daily life. Mm -hmm. It sounds like obviously that has resonated with your customers. But how do you guys think about that in terms of like marketing and rolling out new flavors and kind of being able to catch that nostalgia wave as part of this consumer behavior change? A hundred percent. I mean, so I do a hundred percent of our formulation, which is also an insane thing to be doing while you're also the CEO, but I manage and the nostalgia aspect, even for myself is built in somewhere into every flavor, right? It's like, so our watermelon lime, for example, it tastes like a watermelon Jolly Rancher, or at least it smells like one, right? It's got on the front, on the front side, it's got this, that similar kind of candy Jolly Ranchers note to it. But then the kind of bottom end is this slightly tart, quite sweet kind of agua fresca vibe. And then it's all smashed into like a soda kind of architecture. And that's kind of the approach on the formulation side that I take for every flavor. It's kind of what is the anchor? What's the nostalgic anchor? And then how do we evolve the flavor so that it's, you know, ownable and it's kind of pushing the category forward? But from a marketing side, yeah, I think, you know, for sure the nostalgia is important. And I think the other thing that we've really started to identify, and it's underpinned our new kind of brand platform, which is called Real Love Makes Us, is that the aspect of soda that has kind of the deepest resonance for customers is this idea that soda was really there for people when they were kids and when they were growing up. And it, it was a part of a lot of core developmental memories for people on the social and, and kind of family side. And yeah, the idea being, if I'm 
Coca-Cola and I'm there for you on your fifth birthday. And then in comes some new brand and it's like, Coca-Cola is stupid. Don't you know you're stupid for drinking Coca-Cola? Well, the problem is Coke was there for that person when they were five and the new brand, it didn't even exist, right? So I think what we're really trying to speak to is Soda's place and Olipop's place as a part of people's social and kind of attachment and familial experiences, which is the core from a memory basis of where attachment and nostalgia really comes from. And now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. With talking about Coke for a second and how big of a market share companies like that do have, I'm interested to hear about how you guys think about just fitting in and finding a place and finding market share in the beverage business in general. Because while soda hasn't had a lot of innovation, beverage as a category definitely has. I mean, I feel like every time I go to the grocery store, there's new things in that beverage section that I've never heard of before. Of course, you have a differentiated product, but how do you stand out when you are up against so many different beverage kinds, types, different sizes, different flavors? Like there's just so many options. How do you guys think you're able to kind of stand out in the way that you do? So I'm my philosophical base has always been I'm mindful of competition, but I'm kind of relentlessly focused on what's the core insight and quality of our offering. And I do think it's also really important to build a product that has multiple reasons for entry. So at the core of Olipop, what we've tried to do is create a really good tasting product with really fun and accessible pack design with a nutrition facts panel that's really compelling and an ingredient deck that's really compelling and a disproportionately large amount of of research. And I think the other thing that we've already touched on a bit, but it is that kind of nostalgia meets ownability, right? Because if we were just leveraging nostalgia or just leveraging modern ownability, we wouldn't have the full picture. But having both allows our customers to be simultaneously transported back to experiences that they love and appreciate, while also giving them some a path forward with their offerings. So really, I know it sounds like a bit oversimplistic, but just make sure that your underlying product is just operating on multiple levels and is really, really high quality. You know, and then it's about building a good business that can actually deliver it consistently, deliver it at the right level of quality consistently to the consumer as well. Like that makes a really big difference. And I don't super worry about sometimes if I see something, I'm like, hey, that's a good idea or that's well executed. Like I might take note and I actually appreciate high quality beverage entrance. But I think a lot of a lot of the time I look at a lot of the new innovation coming to the market and I'm, I can kind of see some of the gaping flaws it, it's going to have in terms of really scaling and, you know, just like let them keep passing through. And Olipop obviously saw a really, really big gear last year. Before we start talking about your growth, I really I, I always love asking food companies this. Has the big soda industry approached you at all, whether to copy your product or to, you know, uh, buy you out? Have they approached you at all? So that's got to unfortunately be one of those no comment things. I would say that, you know, I think you can imagine with the kind of disruption that we've created, it's not like we're not, you know, on some radars and there's not some interest. But in terms of the specificity of conversations, I'm going to have to pull a big old no comment. Okay. All right. No. Yeah. So let's talk about the growth of last year. What happened? You know, I think. Yeah, we really blew out our own expectations. I don't, like I, you know, I think that we we went from about seventy four million at top line to about two hundred million at top line in one year, which is 
wild. And I think the other aspect is that we did that in less than 30,000 retail doors, which I'm not actually sure that's happened in U.S. history today. You know, some companies that weren't even as large as us that are kind of good market comps were in anywhere from 70 to 110,000 retail doors at our size or, or even smaller. So to do this much volume in a fairly tight footprint of, of stores is just is crazy and in cold. So I don't think either of those things have happened before. And some of it was really great support from our retailers. We've seen a lot of great shelf expansion this year. But, you know, obviously the most of it is your sales go up when your customer buys your product and or a combination of, I think, our marketing strategies, our new flavors, our increased footprint on, on store shelves and organic demand. Organic demand really, really spiked throughout this year and just grew us to probably double what we were expecting. And speaking of growth and scale, I'm definitely curious because you guys are in sort of one category, the soda category now. When you think about growing and scaling the company, do you think about adding new products or is it more of like a new flavors, more distribution? Like, how do you think about scaling the company from where it is now? I would say yes to all. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. To, I mean, all all of those are totally viable tools on the table. You know, we've tried to be pretty mindful around innovation. Look, I mean, you're going up against a soda's a $42 billion industry, right? So you could mine and keep growing soda in the United States kind of indefinitely. So, you know, we have our eye on some pipeline innovation, but I think we've, we've been trying to be pretty disciplined around soda. But yeah, I mean, for sure, there'll be enhanced distribution. There's going to be new retailers. There's going to be additional kind of formats of availability. All that stuff's on the table for growth. New channels, so, you know, club and convenience and, you know, expanding our footprint, digital, like, all of that, all of that will be coming along. And you mentioned before, you brought up food deserts, and I thought that was really interesting because how do you take a product like this and target communities where they might not be near a lot of retailers? Or how do you really, do you have a plan in targeting food deserts? It's extremely important. And I think that you've got to try to address it from a couple different angles. One thing is, and this a big area for us of growth this year, it will be in small format stores and convenience. And, you know, oftentimes these food desert areas don't have a traditional grocery store. For better or worse, they do oftentimes have a lot of convenience stores. And so scaling and convenience is actually one way to help with accessibility. And then I think the two other roadways are partnering, you know, obviously with these insurance offerings. Now, sometimes low-income communities obviously have lower incidences of insurance coverage. So that may or may not help you, but in instances where that's available, and then you're also in a local small format store, that would be pretty meaningful for a community. And I think the third option is really to partner with organizations that are, that that's their primary focus. There's a range of those organizations, actually, that we're in contact with and are in active conversations with. Actually, some of those doors really opened as a byproduct of the White House's Nutrition and Hunger Summit and the organization that they've built around that, because hunger was actually is a big part of the focus of that summit. And they're really, really focused on those 30 million Americans that really have fundamental access problems. And again, I think the scale of the problem is well in excess of folks who have acute access problems, but all of the outcomes are more severe for those communities. And so I think they warrant additional effort. But I would say those are kind of the three main strategies we would use to increase accessibility to that group. 
And kind of switching gears a little bit to the company itself, I know you mentioned that you still are pretty much in charge of coming up with the new flavors and working on that side, which sounds crazy. (laughs) For better or worse. (laughs) To also be in like a leadership position, a founder. How do you manage your time doing that? And sort of like, why does it make the most sense for you to continue working on that even as the company does continue to grow? Yeah, I know. I honestly, I mean, these are questions that, you know, they're always things that I'm I'm evaluating kind of dynamically. I would say on the formulation side, I would say that the experience that our customers are having with the product indicates I'm doing at least a decent job. And I would say that I have struggled to find like a flavor house or even an individual that I've has kind of met expectations that I would find adequate for the company, right? If we hired some R&D staff into the, into the team that felt like I could start to mentor them and train them up, which could very well happen one day, then that could theoretically involve a bit of a transfer of that particular vertical. But right now, or until I find an alternative, adequate alternative. You know, I'm just on formulation duties. And, you know, for what it's worth, obviously, I do really enjoy it. It is a really meaningful creative outlet for me. And it's something that I feel like it's the most direct expression, almost, that I can have. It's like the most direct relationship, ironically, that I have with our customers. Because I just go into my lab, which is literally down the hall in my house. I pop some music on and I just work on formulas. And I don't even think about the fact that millions of people are going to drink them. In fact, we just hit Actually, this hasn't been announced anywhere else. It's a little fresh thing for you guys, but we just hit 10% household penetration, which is awesome. So one in 10 households now have Olipop. And you know, so I don't even really think about that, but I am when I'm formulating, but I'm I'm still I'm in awe of the fact that I'm able to create that for all of our customers, especially the ones that need it from a health perspective. And then on the the rest of it, the leadership position, it is so important that you recognize your strengths and weaknesses, which sounds cliche. I think being in a a rapidly escalated leadership position would naturally make most people feel some level of insecurity, whether they're willing to admit it or not. And it's super normal and it's super healthy that it would trigger that experience because it's kind of a natural to go from just like a person with a dream to all of a sudden we've got like 110 employees and you're in this multi-hundred million dollar business. So being able to really come to the table and say, look, this is areas where I really shine. These are areas where I really am not as strong. And how do I then really think about building out the team to complement where I'm strong, where I'm weak? I'm a great, I'm strong with vision. I'm strong with leadership. I'm like an okay manager, you know? And that's so, for example, like, I know it'll be really important at the C-suite and at the VP level inside of our business for me to build out a world-class team of managers to kind of complement. And then what I have to know how to do is to continue to hold the standard that I want and the vision that I want while also letting the professionals that I hired do their job with a certain amount of autonomy and learning all that balance, especially with how rapidly your perspective needs to shift, is super, super critical for juggling all those different things that you just called out. Because if you don't continuously level set with how the environment is dynamically changing, you will get absolutely crushed. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely curious how you think about 
fundraising for this as well. Kind of similar to how I mentioned earlier of grabbing customers in such a crowded category. What was it like pitching investors? Did you come across some investors who were like, oh, beverage is too packed? Like, I just am not confident about that space in general. Or like, what was that process like? Yeah, that's a good, actually a great point because there really are, there are different verticals of investors. And generally speaking, it's definitely wise if you have a CPG product to speak to CPG investors because they're expecting different timelines for scale. They're expecting different kind of return dynamics. Also, I would say that CPG investors tend to be more methodical and more picky because one of the different aspects of their models, instead of investing in 10 things, just writing them all with whips and expecting nine of them to die, they have to try to get a higher success rate and also a slightly different kind of return on their investment. The fundraising process is kind of just, are you independently wealthy? Yes or no? (laughs) If the answer is no, you probably need some money. And then, you know, I think the most complicated decisions really are these nexus points between, okay, how long of a of a runway are you going to raise for? What do you think you will have accomplished by the time you're at the end of that runway? And what do you want the timings to be? You're kind of swinging from rope to rope while you're still in the fundraising cycle. And you simply have to feel really confident around the price I'm paying for this rope to swing to the next tree. And am I going to be at a place that's adequately differentiated from where I am now to warrant the enhanced value to keep going through that cycle? We've been really lucky with Olipop that we've always had more investor interest than we would ever be able to to take, which is obviously a very enviable position to be in. And, you know, I recognize that we're extremely lucky to have been there. I think part of it's predicated on the operating team, part of it's predicated on the strength of the underlying product, and part of it's predicated on the kind of historical industry experience that my co-founder and I have and some of the connections that we've had. So from our standpoint, the fundraising aspect has never been particularly difficult. And it, and a lot of our decision making has been around, you know, what investors do we want around the table and who do we want to work with and who do we not want to work with and how do we structure things like governance and, and board and all that. We only have time for maybe one or two more questions. So as we begin to wrap up first, what's next for Olipop? Yeah, I mean, so this year... We're going to have a couple more flavors, which I'm very excited about. One of them is going to be attached to a very fun partnership, which I can't divulge yet, but it's coming and it's going to be cool. We're definitely expanding our retail footprint. So you're going to find us, I don't know, we'll hit double the stores this year, but we're definitely going to, we should be increasingly accessible. And then it's a really exciting year for the Real Love Makes Us platform. You know, we effectively, we did a bunch of research in, in 22 to be like, hey, this is where we're landing. And then in 23, we kind of got it off the ground with the Camila Cabello ad and some of the work we did in the back end of the year, which has been, it's been really fun. And I think we've got some really cool stories that we want to tell. And I also think we want to start pulling our customer into the conversation more because what we've found is we have really high affinity customers and I'd love to get their voices in in the mix. So I think those are like three of the biggest areas of focus for us this year. And I'm I'm really excited about them. And my last question was kind of a weird one, but I just want to know, what is the weirdest flavor you tried to create? That one I actually do have an easy answer for because I had just gotten back from a trip to Japan and I had tried this lemon peel drink that I thought was actually really delicious. And I was like, what if I made lemon peel serrano pepper? And so it was this like spicy lemon peel flavor. And I actually, I finished the formula. The one thing that 
didn't work about the version I was using is I was using micronized Serrano powder. And so the carbonation was kicking little bits of pepper up into your nose when you smelled it. And it was it was not that didn't work because you didn't want to start sneezing when you went to go smell the flavor. I obviously know how I would address that now, but that's definitely the that's definitely the weirdest thing that I actually formulated from start to finish. This is pretty tasty. That's so funny. I'm going to sneak in one last question. What is your favorite flavor? So that's super difficult. I would say right now it's a five-way tie between oh, wow. <laughs> Tropical Punch, Classic Grape, Cherry Cola, Lemon Lime, and Watermelon Lime. Those are kind of like you know, if I'm going to have a couple in my fridge, those are the ones that are kind of in main rotation in my fridge right now. Well, cool. We're right about out of time. So thank you so much, Ben, for coming on. This has been so fun to talk yeah. to you. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate your time and, all, and some great questions. And that was our conversation with Ben. Dom, start us off. What was the lie? Okay, so... The lie was that Olipop did not do 150 million in sales. They actually did 200 million in sales. Who is drinking Olipop? Oh my gosh, apparently everyone. I mean, Ben even said they're at 10% penetration in households, which I mean, for a company that's not that old and like such a specific product in a very crowded category, like that's pretty impressive. That is really impressive. When I think of Olipop, for some reason it's giving like millennial in Brooklyn. I'm seeing health consciousness, lifestyle influencer. I actually sent it to my parents afterward because I was like, hey, you know, maybe we can stop drinking all that soda. We can do Olipop instead. I don't know. It seems like a really, really interesting business. I love how he was talking about how he makes all of the flavors still by himself in a lab, I guess, down the hall from him. That's crazy to me because you always think of startup founders and like startup CEOs, at least this is how they talk on like LinkedIn and stuff. They're like, I'm so busy, so busy, like family by the wayside by accident. I never take a day off. Busy, 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 busy. And then you have like Ben and he's like, yeah, and I do like three jobs and like I'm still like the main product development and stuff. And it's just like, wow, we need to have him back on just to talk about time management. I know. We need one of those annoying, like, oh, I get up at 4 a.m. and I do X, Y, Z. I'm like, no, I want Ben's daily schedule. I actually would think it was interesting. (laughs) He knows so much about gut health. I actually wanted to start asking him questions. I'm like, can I actually consult with you on the side? I have a question. (laughs) No, I know. I wish we had asked him, but there's just like so much stuff we didn't have time to get to. Because this is not like the first company we've had on found that's talked about new emphasis and like people caring more about microbiomes and gut health. And like, I just want to know why. Like, why now are there all these studies and companies trying to tackle issues there and like products meant for it? Like, I'm just like curious why we all care about it now. I think everyone is having tummy issues. All the hot girls do. All the hot girls. We saw Drake said he was going to step away from music because he's having tummy issues. I often have tummy issues. My friend in Australia, tummy issues. The tummy issues are getting us. We don't know what's going on. No, for sure. I mean, I will try anything to reduce the tummy (laughs) issues, Uh, especially if it's going to be something like this where it's like a soda that you could grab instead of that other drink you were going to grab anyway, and it's better for you. And bonus might help those tummy issues. It's like, whoo, sign me up. I really wish we got to ask him about how this is like deductible for some people. Yes. For medical play, because I wanted to talk what it was like working with big medicine on trying to get soda deducted from an insurance plan. Yeah. And like big insurance. I mean, we've talked about this before and we've had companies on that do interact with insurance and Medicare and Medicaid and things like that, where I'm just like, that just sounds really complicated. And dealing with that sounds like such a huge undertaking. It's also just with that being said, interesting 
to think about being like, that's a good use of time and resources from a soda company. Yeah, you're right. I wish we did ask him about that because maybe there's like a very obvious reason as to like why that did make sense to pursue. I was going to ask, but then I imagine he would say like, it was obviously really awful and the insurance companies were mean, but we got through it. Yeah, that's true. Should have asked. We'll bring him back. We're going to get him back. Yeah, we'll do an update with him and just ask him about that. He'll be like, so my recent, and we'll be like, no, we we actually have like five other questions we didn't get to a year ago when we talked to you. I know, it's the follow-up. I also love how um, he did not confirm or deny if Big Soda has approached him. I know. I mean, like, it's only a matter of time. Well, I feel like in this case, a no comment means a yes, because otherwise you could just be like, no, <laughs> would be like a very non-controversial answer. So like, I mean, he said no comment, guys. So that's what's on the record. But like for me personally, no comment. That's a yes. But you know, this is also really interesting because this company too also taps into the nostalgia factor. My question for you would be like, since you didn't really, you don't really drink soda, how does Olipop kind of work for you? What is the nostalgia for you? Yeah, because I definitely don't get the nostalgia piece just because I just didn't grow up drinking soda and still don't. But they definitely, and maybe this is like a market they should purposely brand tour. It gets me in like the little treat market. Because like if I'm in the store and I'm like, oh, I'm about to teach Pilates for three hours. I'm going to buy myself like a little treat to drink like while I'm teaching that third hour. Like I made it. woohoo! And then I look at this and it's like, oh, I wouldn't buy a soda. Not just because I don't drink them regularly, but because of the health factors to like I'd almost always get a seltzer but like this because it's better for you and so low and like sugar and stuff I've actually that's the only reason I bought Olipop before was that exact reason I bought it as like a little treat because I was like this isn't bad for me and I wanted a seltzer it's close enough and so yeah I feel like they should lean more into the little treat market so we're saying like a partnership with Peloton or something oh I would love that a little treat treat yourself and with no caffeine, I feel like little treat is always so often like a coffee. But like, what if you want a little treat and it's 5 p.m.? Like an Olipop is perfect. Exactly. You know, we, we need something to fill that 5 p.m. gap where you can't just drink coffee, but you also can't do wine or something. Yeah. Like if you're still working, like I'm not going to like pop a beer like while I'm at work. But like I know, right? an Olipop, sure. But an Olipop, not us doing marketing for him. <laughs> <laughs> We're not getting paid for this, I promise. We're not getting paid for this. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. But yeah, I'm just like so interested in a company like this doing as well as it has. Because I know we asked them about it a little bit, but like beverage is so crowded. Even like the grocery stores in my neighborhood that I feel like don't get a ton of new products in. Like if there's something new and hot in like this space, we don't generally get it for a while just because it's like old key food franchises and the like. But it's like the beverage thing is totally different. There's so many new beverages. And I feel like every time I go to the store, there's something new I've never heard of. And there's something different to try. So like getting that successful in such a hard category that is so crowded, it's like good to hear about. It's crazy. It's really impressive, especially because there's like a new beverage every single week in the aisles. That's what it feels like for sure. They're always like testing them at Whole Foods too. I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> which goes back to the, the first question question, which was like, who's drinking Olipop? I know. Where are you? Apparently everyone. <laughs> I need to get on this wavelength. I haven't had one yet, but I mean, I got to get on it, I guess. Yeah, no, you should. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori davis Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. 
TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. 